Spirit would water the, the seeds that have been planted in their lives over the years. In Christ's name, amen. I, uh, I am turning 40 in six months. Um, <laughs> Thanks, honey. <laughs> and uh, um, I know, actually, it's kind of a mix of things. Either I get picked on about it, or um, or or folks say, "Oh, you're still you're still young." You know, oh, it's it's barely anything. Forty is barely anything. And I I uh, I, I uh, actually just this week got in the mail a book that my dad recommended. Uh, like six months ago, on uh, on aging, which when I started reading it, like I'm about two chapters in, I figured out that it's for 60-year-olds. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what that says. Uh, <laughs> but um, as I'm reading it, like they, I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest and I'm gonna be uh, be uh, open, and and I'll probably get picked on for it later, but. Um, I, there's a part of me in my head that is that is very aware of the fact that 40 is not, you know, 30 anymore, right? Like I'm getting older, and and um, older is is uh, a little intimidating um, for me. I I uh, I look at all the things I want to get done, and I say, oh man, I really got to get on it. But one of the things that um, really has jumped out at me is that like Abby keeps saying things like, you know, oh well, when I get married, which I keep telling her is when she's 40. Um, she's allowed to get married or start dating. Um, well, I get married. I want Daddy to do the service. This morning it was. Um, we were talking about how smart she was. She came up and woke us up and started telling us, "Oh, you know, I'm, I'm." I said, "Abby, you're very cute." And she said, "Oh, and I'm smart." And I said, "Well, you're, you're probably smarter than Mom. She, she married me." And she said, "Yeah, you're right." <laughs> And she started, you know, she started listing off all the reasons I'm a poor choice of husband. Um, I, but but there's a part of it that says, well, I, I have to be there for these things. I don't want to die young. And so, like, I, I don't believe in New Year's resolutions, but I, I've decided, well, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to start being a little more active, and I'm going to start doing these things and doing these things so that I can live longer and so I can improve the quality of my life. And, and I, I think, actually, last year on the first sermon after New Year's, I talked about resolutions, and I'm going to ask again. Is anybody going to try and do anything this year? Is anybody resolving? That's like two of us, three. <laughs> um, everybody else is perfect or content. That may be it. I, <laughs> um, but as I, as I look at it, I, I've read a bunch of articles on, on resolutions and why they succeed and why they don't. And I, I've done, like when I did addictions counseling for, for years, I, I would like look at how people are and I, I, there's this like fundamental reality that people of their own strength are terrible at changing. Everybody got that? We're not good at changing. We are okay the way we are, right? Even when we're miserable, we're usually okay with it. And it's kind of a cool thing like, like that, that we can look at something new and say, well, is that going to measure out better? And so like you'll, you'll do like work with you know, drug addicts or alcoholics or whatever, and they'll say, well, you know, I really want to quit doing these things, but this makes me feel good, so this is where I'm at. You know, or this is the easiest way to escape, and I don't want to learn a new way to deal with my problems, and so I'm not going to do it. You know, or these patterns are too hard, or even eating. Like, I think, oh, well, I really want to lose weight, but I really love tacos. Um, And it's sort of a tough balance, isn't it? I mean, like, as wonderful as it would be to be thin, I'm already married. i got no reason to look good. Um, (laughs) 
I, <laughs> I know it's sarcasm from my wife because she knows I already look good. Um, I, but like all of these like things, and, and what ends up happening is people will start trying to change, and they'll discover after a couple of weeks or three weeks or a month, they'll say, wait a minute, these things aren't easy to do, and they aren't making me happy suddenly. Like if I suddenly lost 50 pounds, I wouldn't be miraculously happier than I was. I would just be thinner, and I wouldn't be eating fun food. Like it would be a change that isn't guaranteed to make me happy. And when it doesn't make us happy, we go back to it. And the, the bad thing about that is that, that we get entrenched in things like sin, right? I mean, like sometimes doing the right thing isn't fun. Um, and, and, and so we get entrenched in sin or we get stuck in bad situations or we get lost to, to what's right or we, you know, wander away from what God has for us or we abandon, like, good teaching in favor of fun teaching or, or whatever. Like all of these things can kind of encroach and sort of drag us off, and that's, that's not good. Um, and changing back on our own strength doesn't work. Everybody with me? Um, because not only are we inclined to do what's easy and fun and feels good, but we have this nature, right? You can blame it on your great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. All of us are sinful by nature, by inclination. You give me two choices, a right one and a wrong one, and I'm going to find a creative way to do the wrong one, Right? It's just, it's sin. Like, it's in all of us. We are all fallen. We all naturally rebel. It is who we are. And it is miserable, right? Um, You want a perfect example of that? My daughter lies to me. I know, that sweet little angel. My question is, who taught her how to lie? (laughs) She She doesn't listen to me. There's no way she learned it from me. Um, who taught her? Well, no one taught her to lie. She's sinful by nature. It's just the way it is. Everybody learns to lie on their own, and we learn to steal on our own. We learn to hit each other because, you know, you have this, I want it, and so I'm going to hit you and take it. Like, we, we didn't need to learn that from anyone. We get it on our own. We're good at doing wrong things from birth, and it's just the way it is. Um, as we dive into John this morning, um, we're looking at Jesus entering the world, and I, I actually want to apologize. Last week's sermon was a lot, and I realized I took on, like, the first 13 verses. And when you look at how this passage is normally cut up, it's normally um, 18 verses. And really, I should have done six, and then another six. And then, and, and so we're going to do a smaller chunk of the text today, and we're going to refer back to last week. So if you weren't here last week, I'm sorry. Um, but I'll try and, try and make it as easy as I can. Some background, I'm going to do this very quick. Um, the book itself, John, was written late in the first century. He's the last disciple alive. He wrote it as an old man, and he's not writing to the same audience as the other Gospels. He's writing to sort of like pagans who were like Greek pagans or Greek-educated pagans, and he's writing to Jewish-educated, um, um, like, excuse me, Greek-educated Jews. Because everybody learned Greek, right? Everybody went to Greek schools. You studied Greek philosophy. You studied Greek writing. You studied Greek language. Everybody learned it as the way the whole world at the time was. And so there's a whole lot of influence of, like, Greek thought and words and everything else. And we're going to talk about that as we go. Um, The first 13 verses talk about Jesus as the Word, right? The Logos. And the Word was with God. So, like, it tells us that Jesus was before the creation of the world, right? And that Jesus is the light and the darkness, like that our world is dark and sinful, right? But that Jesus enters our world and brings light and truth and changes things, and it's awesome. Um, and, and all of that we covered, and we'll touch on some of that, but I just wanted to give some background. It is very vague and very, like, heady. Um, it is kind of difficult 
Uh, it's the kind of verses, actually, that I love because they're so, like, full of possibility. Um, as we get to this last uh, thing here, John talks a lot about um, Jesus' message, like the big themes, how Jesus is rejected by people, right? Um, how Jesus is, um, like, unknown by the creation, how he's eternal, how he is the light of the world, how he's water for thirsty people, how he's new life, the whole nine years. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in it because John is writing to a Greek-educated audience, and they all look for that kind of thing in their literature. Got it? Like, every movie now ends with a twist. Why? Because we're spoiled to it. If there's no twist, I'm bored. Which, Anyway, um, John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory, um, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, there is a lot in this. First off, the word. Last week we talked about it. Logos is the Greek there, right? This is the second time the word logos is used in this passage. And logos means, like we, we talked about for Jewish people, it meant like the Old Testament, right? Like the Torah. You know, the, the, I pronounced that wrong even by Hebrew standards. Um, like the Torah, like was the word, like it was wisdom was the word. And so Jewish readers would be like, oh, well, he's talking about wisdom. He's talking about these scriptures. He's talking about the law. Um, pagan readers would read it, and they'd be like, oh, well, he's talking about, like, understanding of the world that's outside of the world, right, and completely separate from the world. But Christian readers would read it, and they'd say, oh, he's talking about Jesus, right? And this first part, the word became flesh, is unheard of for a Greek reader. For a Jewish reader, there's talk of this, like, in Isaiah and stuff like that, where Isaiah says, oh, the word would become flesh, and we'd see the glory of God. Um, but for like a Greek reader, Greeks believe that everything in this world is sort of crummy, right? There's sort of an ideal version of everything, and that ideal version is like out there, outside of our world, and everything in this world is a copy, right? Um, and so they would read that the word became flesh, and they'd be like, uh-uh, not at all, right? And actually, one of the most controversial components of the faith of Christianity is this idea that the word, that God himself became flesh, that he stepped into this world and resided amongst us. Um, and actually, every big heresy, you look at the big, like, breakaways from Christianity and, like, rebellions against Christianity, the big idea here is God cannot become flesh. It cannot happen. It was either that he was only partially flesh, like he was just sort of looked like it, but he wasn't actually a person, or... Um, Oh, well, um, it, it's just that the Holy Spirit, or like the Spirit of God came and stood with this guy who was flesh, but there was never really an interaction there because God can't become flesh. Or like, oh, well, this is just the guy that God designated and he was never God in the first place. Or like there are all these breakaways, but what John is saying here is pretty unequivocal, right? The Word became flesh, meaning that God himself stepped into the creation and became flesh. Now, there's some cool stuff in this. Um, first off is this idea that, uh, like in the, the Greek here, and I'm going to, i got to look at my notes. I don't usually look at my notes. I'm kind of careless. Uh, I have a resolution this year to be more careful. Um, the word tabernacle in Greek is miskon, right? Miskon. I'm pronouncing it wrong, so don't bother quoting me. Um, and tabernacle um, is a reference to, like, like God's glory and presence. 
um, in the, the wilderness. So like the Jewish people, like after they left Egypt, Moses shows up, they leave Egypt, and they get lost because Moses was giving directions, and they wander around for 40 years um, before Moses dies, and they find where they're going. Um, and, and so, like, they're there, and God chooses to dwell amongst his people. And they build this tent, right, and this big, elaborate, furnished, like, mobile temple, and God dwells with his people. Like, he, his glory is manifest there, and you don't even go near it. You don't touch it. You don't look at it. Moses glowed like a light bulb when he went near it, right? And we see this is the pattern for God. Whenever God would speak, the earth would shake, right? People would fall on their faces and say, oh, wow, please do not destroy me, right? Like there is this huge gulf and distance between God and man. Now, God is love. Like God is loving. God created the creation to love it and to be connected to it. And so like because of sin, we have all of this separation and distance. And God like chooses to dwell amongst his people. He dwells in a tent. And like when he does that, you can't even go near it, right? Outside of the plan. Everybody with me? But that's Miskam. That, and, like, actually, it's also used in reference to um, the temple, when God would dwell in the temple and the place would light up like a Christmas tree on steroids. Um, and, and you couldn't go near it. And, like, only certain people were allowed in certain places. And you had to go through ceremonial cleaning and everything else to even, like, like approach it. Like, like, God's presence dwelled. And it was overpowering. Right? Um, it was overpowering because it was so impressive. It was so amazing. Um, it was so glorious. Now, what John says here is the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Um, and we have seen his glory. Glory is only the son from the father, full of grace and truth. So now what we're getting here is that Jesus came along and set up shop. Um, he, like, is this earthly tabernacle kind of, Right? Like, he is in our presence, but now there's a slight change. Now Jesus can walk up and talk to pretty much everybody, right? He can talk to prostitutes. He can talk to drunks. He can talk to homeless people. He can talk to um, Romans. Everybody hated those guys. He can talk to Samaritans. People really, really hated those guys. You would spit when you said Samaritan to get the word out of your mouth. Um, like if you were a Jewish person, they really hated those guys. He would talk to lepers who like had to cross the street when you approach them and yell, hey, I'm unclean, don't come near me. Like Jesus was God who could step into the presence of his people and be there without like people falling down and crumbling, right? Without people dying for being in his presence. And so God sets up what John is telling us. God sets up his tabernacle amongst us. This is like, this is a, not a small thing. The Jewish readers are reading this and they're a little put off. The Greek pagan readers are reading it and they have no idea what's going on. But they're like, the word became flesh, that's offensive. And the Jewish readers are like, what do you mean, the tabernacle? Like, this man was the new tabernacle? I don't think so. That's not the way it works. Um, and so John is like playing out this huge idea here that can run right by you if you're not careful. And I wanted to really emphasize that. So like God steps into the world. He sets up his tabernacle. He's living amongst his people. He is right there. Um, and then we move on. Like, like so the word, i got to backtrack a little bit. The word, we have three or four explanations. We have three explanations. Um, it's only used twice. First, ver verse 1, it's coexisting with God before the creation, Right? So the word coexists before God. Um, we have some other explanation that the word was identified as the source of all light, right? So like light in the world, life, everything that is like pure and good and holy and awesome um, is there. And actually contrast it with John. He says John is not the light, 
but he testifies about the light in verses 6 through 8. That was last week. Um, and then he's presented as being in the world but unknown by his creation. And now, like, the word is tabernacling amongst us. He's camping with us. Everybody with me? Uh, let me make sure I kind of covered everything. i got to go back. Oh, First oh, John. The other thing that's really important here is that this is fundamental to what we believe as Christians, right? Beloved, this is First John. John wrote this letter, and he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Um, which you have heard is coming and now is in the world already. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, folks, if anybody shows up and they say, well, you know what, Jesus, great teacher, great guy, nice fella, not God. Right? Or God only sort of became flesh, but not really. John is saying this is a litmus test, right? You want to know if somebody's teaching like real stuff? Like one of the first questions to ask is, Jesus, son of God, God incarnate in the flesh, this is a big deal. This is what we believe. Um, now, here's why this matters. Um, it matters because, first off, we get to see the glory of God, but also because, jo- well, we'll come back to that. Let's, um, he dwells amongst us, and we see his glory, and glory is of only the Son and the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, by the way, are words that are sometimes harder to understand um, because they sound very lofty, um, Grace and truth would be like grace would be uh, loving kindness or gracious mercy. It's anything that you receive that you do not deserve and cannot earn, right? So Jesus is full of grace, and he is full of truth, which is like faithfulness or steadfastness or constancy or like never changing. So Christ comes into the world. He's full of this grace and truth, which means he is full of gifts for us that we cannot receive and do not – or that we do not – deserve and cannot earn and it is constant and he is unchanging and he is faithful and he is loving um here's why this matters when i try really 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 hard i am not adding anything to the equation everybody got it um i can try super hard to make god happy but i am primarily making god happy because of jesus in my life God is in the process of changing me to be more like Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he's in the process of changing you to be more like Jesus, right? Um, It's common you see people say, well, I'm going to try harder with these things. Ultimately, God changes us through this grace and truth that comes in Christ. Um, Real change in our lives cannot be resolved or forced or earned or worked at or anything else. Real change in us, heart, soul, mind, everything is a product of Christ in our lives. Everybody hear hear me? Everybody with me? Everybody still awake? All right. Thanks. Um, Now, this is a parenthetical, verse (laughs) 2, second verse. This is a parenthetical aside kind of comment. There are folks who argue whether or not John actually wrote this part of it was inserted later, like early versions of this book have it. So it's probably there. John inserts this as sort of an aside. So he says, the word became flesh. He says, John, meaning John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And so like he steps aside and he says, wait a minute. Now, be aware, John was older, 
right? And older people deserve more respect in Oriental culture. It's just the way they were. Um, But John still said, hey, he's before me even though I was born first. He is a bigger deal than me even though, like, like I have a bigger ministry right now. He is everything. I am nothing. Like, and actually, John says that. We looked at that in, um, I believe, well, we looked at that later in this gospel where John says, I must become less so he can become more. Um, and the idea there is, like, John the Baptist, who we're going to come back to again in a minute, um, or next week, actually, we'll talk about him at length, sorry. Um, John said, um, this was he whom I said. Like John predicts, he's able to talk about him before he knows him. When he encounters him, he's able to point to him and say, this is the guy, this is the word, this is God's like savior, this is the man himself. Um, so John's aside is over. He goes back to the point. This is 16 and 17. There's only one more verse after this. Um, he says, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is a complicated, like it's a tough one, and it's often misunderstood, and there's lots of arguing about what it means. Um, It's actually easier if you read it backward. Isn't that funny? Um, The law came through Moses, meaning God showed us what is expected through Moses. He gave us this covenant, this contract agreement, and that was considered to be a grace. Right? God gives us this grace because we can know who God is because he talked to Moses and Moses gave out this information. Right? God doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to owe us anything. It's not like part of the contract. There's nothing. Like God does this because he has grace. He reveals himself and gives us guidelines for the relationship. Um, and after that, he reveals himself more fully in Christ meaning like we get to see who God is more completely. We see a glimpse of him in the law, and we see God fully in Christ. And so we have a fullness, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, meaning we got the law, which was a grace, and this is a bigger grace. Um, Last week, one of the verses we looked at, uh, it says, uh, this is verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. We talked about that true light phrasing, and it's easy to say, oh, well, it means that it's real light, not fake light, right? Like he's the real son of God, not the fake one. In reality, what it means is he is a bigger picture of who God is, a more complete picture than what we received in the Old Testament and the law, meaning like we talked about a candle. We had candles lit here that almost set the piano on fire, um, and and that candle is bright, but you take that candle outside and the light ain't nothing, ain't it? Right? Like the real light is out there, right? The real light is awesome. Um, I met my wife on the internet like 18, over 18 years ago when the internet was just two cans on a string. Um, and we traded texts, like we typed back and forth. And, and I, she mailed me a couple of photographs, which are hanging up in my office at home. Um, and, and I knew who she was because I had had sort of like basic conversations with her and I knew what she looked like. I was able to pick her out of a crowd when I first encountered her in real life. But 17 years later, I know her in a very different way than I knew her over the internet, right? Because I have a truer version of her in our relationship. Um, this is basically what we're getting out of John here. He's saying, look, from the fullness, we have received grace, um, In Christ, we see 
absolutely the fullness of God, right? We get right in, right in our face, we can stand and talk to God in Christ, or they could. Um, we actually are given later the idea that the Holy Spirit shows up and is God tabernacling, camping with his people in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, right? Um, and that's sort of like one of the closing themes of John. We're not going to talk about that at length this morning. But like at that point, that was the fullness of God. They could see him face to face. He was right there. And so when we look for God, when we look for an ideal, I talk a lot about what it is to be a man after God's own heart, what it means to be a real man, as I did a whole series on that. Um, and this is it. It's Jesus, right? Jesus gives us this perfect image of what it means to be a man after God's own heart, what it means to be an ideal man, because he is this perfect version of God, and we are made in God's image, right? Not a perfect version of God. He is God. Right? <laughs> He's a perfect image of God. Um, and so, like, we get this grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. Um, we get this fullness, this full image of this, like, loving, awesome, patient, forgiving, like, terrific God that we serve. Um, let me make sure I'm not missing anything. I'm actually checking my notes again. That's twice in one sermon. Um, one other thing. Uh, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What's the difference? No one? Or anybody awake anymore? Given versus came, right? You give a thing. A person shows up, right? And so part of what he's like hinting at here is, hey, there's a difference, right? We see the fullness of God. We see this ideal of God. We are provided a way to salvation because Jesus would take punishment for our sins. He would die for us. He would be resurrected to demonstrate that everybody comes back to life in the long run. Um, and we get this promise in him and a way to fulfill it. I don't have to try really hard to be godly. Um, trying hard is sometimes a part of it, but real godliness comes through becoming like Jesus, through growing into Christ, to becoming a new man, a new creation in Christ. Um, 18, no one, this is the closing of the verse, and there's something called an inclusio in here, and I'm going to explain that in just a second. I closed my Bible just a second too early. I had it with me so I could read verse 1 again. No one has ever seen God um, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Um, so what John is saying to us, he closes out this verse. And he says, hey, nobody's seen God, right? Um, that's mostly true. Um, we do see where other people encounter God. God tells Moses, you can't see me in my full glory, so you can see me from behind, right? Um, God says to Isaiah, well, God shows up, his face is covered, and Isaiah gets sort of an impression and a visual of God's grace and God's awesomeness, and, like, he is horrified and terrified by it, right? But, like, to step into God's very presence is a huge deal. It's not something that just happens. Everybody with me? And so John closes out. He says, hey, no one's seen God. We haven't seen God in his fullness, in the full, like, awesomeness of who God is. No one has seen him. And every reader at the time, like the Jewish and the pagan, would both read it, and they'd say, absolutely, no one's ever seen God. Of course, that's true. Yeah. Um, but John is setting up a later conversation because in, verse four, or in chapter 14, Jesus is conversing with folks, and Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you 
I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So John, like, sets up the conversation. Actually, in chapter 4, he says it again. Nobody's seen God, right? And then he brings it back around, and Jesus tells us, no, you've seen God if you've seen me. You've been in the presence of God if you've been in my presence. You've eaten with God. You've walked with God. You've talked with God. You've listened to God teach if you've been with me. And he tells us, Philip, he says, hey, pay attention, buddy. I am. I am God. I am the Son. The Father is still out there. Like we are, um, a quick aside, I don't want to leave you confused. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three personalities, one God, right? Three persons, three identities, one God. Um, it's not, oh, this is God in this mask or that mask. It is three persons. Like, and so Jesus identifies, hey, I am God. That is the Father up there. You've seen us, you know, if you've seen me, we are together. We are one. Um, and so as we read this, we understand, like, John is tipping his hand and saying, hey, this is God. Um, and then the inclusio is where we're going to end here. Verse 1 is, in the beginning the word was, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he closes this section out with, no one has ever seen God, the, um, the only God who is at the Father's side. By the way, the better translation of that would probably be at the Father's bosom or like leaning against the Father. Like it's this inclination of like intimacy is sort of the phrase there. Um, it's not well translated in pretty much any English version. Um, no one has seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Meaning, like, in the beginning was the Word, and hey, God has made the Word known. God has revealed himself fully. God has put himself out there, and you've encountered him, if you've encountered Jesus. Um, why does this matter? What are we supposed to do with this? Because it is kind of technical. Everybody with me? It's he heavy stuff, which is why I should have broken it into smaller pieces. Um, what are we supposed to do with this? First off... Um, we do not follow a God who is just out there in the sky, right? That's one of those things you read a lot, like people will make fun of Christianity and they'll say, oh, you believe in some magic man in the sky. That's not what we believe. We believe that God came in the flesh and stood amongst us. We have a God who can identify with our struggles. We have a God who walked in our shoes. We have a God who faced everything and did it perfectly out of love for us. Um, we have the ability to know God intimately in a way that, that um, actually in a way that makes life worth living, in a way that makes life worth having. Um, why would you bother being moral and everything else? We do it because we want to be close to God, not because we, you know, it makes me feel good, it makes us nice, it's what it's expected, I don't get arrested then or whatever. Like we follow God and we obey God and we live this way because... Um, because God has revealed himself in Christ. And in that, he changes us. He has given us the ability to become new people. Because God became flesh, we have the ability to become like him. Um, to become new people, new creations. Um, we have the ability to put away bitterness and envy and wickedness and all of this stuff by growing through his spirit and becoming like Jesus. Um, we're going to close with communion today. And I'm going to call my guys forward for that. And let me explain, like, if you're new with us, we do open communion, meaning that, like, anybody who believes in Christ, believe that Jesus died for our sins, believe that he was God in the flesh, um, 
Like if you believe in Christ, believe that he died for our sins, believe that he rose again, you can take communion with us, okay? And what communion is, um, communion is this um, ceremony that Christ set up to remind us. Um, to remind us of um, what he's done for us and how change happens and how we are forgiven of our sins. On the last night that Jesus was with his disciples, before he was betrayed, um, before he was going out to be arrested, he took his bread at dinner, he broke it up, and he gave it to his like followers, and he said, take this bread as my body, broken for you. Um, do this in remembrance of me. Like, Eat this meal every time you gather to remember me. And what we're doing here as we take communion, as we take the Lord's Supper, um, we're eating the body of Christ and remembering, um, like this symbol of the body of Christ, we're remembering Jesus died for us. Jesus died so that we can be made new. Um, and it's not a matter of, oh, I like that guy. Oh, I'm going to click 